Delegates from about 190 countries from around the world are gathering over the next two weeks at the United Nations Climate Change Conference in Copenhagen. Although this is a landmark event, the largest meeting ever to discuss the environmental future of our planet, I'm a little concerned that we may not be talking about the most important issues. The other night on NPR, David Kestenbaum reported on the first day of the conference. In his report on All Things Considered, he said everyone pretty much agrees that we have to do something about climate change. But how I see it, where the problem lies, is that the delegates also seem to share the same disagreements. In fact, most of the disagreements, they're all about money. Thank you. I give the floor to Bolivia. Developing countries like Bolivia are arguing, hey, the global warming problem, you in the developed world made it. So to solve it, you're going to have to give us money to adapt and to keep our emissions down as we grow. The industrial growth that caused the climate change crisis in the first place will apparently continue. You see, it seems that the Copenhagen delegates are really only arguing about who gets to continue to pollute the atmosphere with carbon gas emissions and how much. No good man's down. No, when you see him like that, there ain't nothing you can do but help him to his feet. The conversation so far seems to be relegated to trading carbon credits for cash so the developing world can continue to build factories and produce consumer goods. But at what cost? What about the environment? And what about the millions of disenfranchised people in the U.S. and around the world who will be most directly impacted as our planet's climate continues to change in the wake of human progress? You might have some bad days, but they come. I won't be attending the conference in Copenhagen, but a few weeks ago, I did attend the Breaking the Color Barrier to the Great Outdoors conference in Atlanta. A few hundred African-American environmentalists gathered to talk about, among other things, the role people of color can play in protecting the natural world. There I met Majora Carter, the 2005 winner of the MacArthur Foundation Genius Grant. She received $500,000 to develop her ideas on creating sustainable urban communities. And while we didn't talk about Copenhagen in particular, Carter has a rather unique perspective on how best to curb some of the social effects of climate change. The MacArthur Foundation dubbed me an urban revitalization strategist, which I love because of the work that I did around pioneering one of the first green jobs training systems in the country, really doing you know, community-based led project development in one of the poorest congressional districts in the country that's also one of the most environmentally challenged. And you know, the idea was that you can do development that met both the environmental as well as the economic needs of a very poor community and give them the tools they needed to enjoy it and be a part of its the environmental issues that our planet faces are not limited to carbon emissions. Though greenhouse gases are indeed the primary cause of global warming, it's the institutions and practices of human behavior that create them. Carter believes that we need to develop community-based initiatives that produce green jobs and allow ordinary people to take an active part in the cessation of carbon-emitting industries. 
In order to make lasting change in the fight against climate change, we have to rethink how we develop and live in our urban centers. And for communities around the world, that's going to mean taking a hard look at issues of social justice, how we treat the urban poor, as well as racial and ethnic minorities. I'm James Mills, and you're listening to The Joy Trip Project. There are many, many challenges involved in doing any kind of development in urban areas, especially those areas where you've had a tremendous amount of disinvestment that, you know, started at a very high level that led to the displacement of people or the the development of lots of noxious facilities in a community or manufacturing or jobs leaving a particular area. So when you couple all that with, you know, lack of opportunities with a more degraded landscape, then you also will layer in things like public health problems and crime and lack of education attainment. When you put all those things together, yes, you do have a very particular slew of problems that are exacerbated by the fact that people feel powerless because of all these things that have been heaped upon them. So given that, you know, you've got the fact that you've got people from the outside going, oh, that's a poor community and they don't know any better. And then you also have people on the inside of it feeling as though they don't deserve any better. That is not an easy place to work. It's just not. And unfortunately, there's lots of places like that in the world. But here we are. You know, we find ourselves doing the work of creating environmental strategies in, in a lot of ways working towards issues of social justice where the environment is a direct result of inequality in many ways racially, socioeconomically to be sure. How are African Americans in particular impacted in the type of work that you're doing and hopefully aiming to correct? The the current state of the environment is a direct result you know, of inequality. Absolutely. The fact that we so that you know public policy will look at a poor community, poor community of color or any color, frankly, and see that that would be a perfectly appropriate place to put some of the most toxic industries ever. And yes, black people disproportionately in this country are the recipients of things like that. We are. Poor black communities in particular. So and it affects everything. It affects our public health. It affects education. It affects the kind of jobs that we'd like to have or not have. It affects the incarceration rates. It affects you know how people view themselves within the context of being an American. It affects their self-esteem. You name it, it affects it. So that's an issue that we have to deal with. People who find themselves in urban centers where their health and well-being is being impacted by their environment don't always have the opportunity to think about recreation in an environmental standpoint. How do people of color find themselves enjoying the outdoors when they have so many other things to deal with? There have been studies that show that when people come in contact with nature that things improve for them. In particular, one of the most famous ones that I know about was done at the University of Illinois. They looked at Cabuni Green, you know, one of the most notorious housing projects, you know, in the world, as far as I know. And, um, you know, and they noticed that kids and families that lived near, like, just a cluster, you know, of little spindly little urban street trees, that the test scores for those kids went up, that the self-esteem rates for little girls also went up, which was evidenced in the fact that 
there was less teenage pregnancy amongst those young women, that there was less crime in those neighborhoods because people were outside more enjoying each other in their community more. So when folks tell me that there is this disconnect between people, you know, especially the, the inner city poor and the environment, I say it's because it's not there. Because the second you build it, people start to respond to it. For example, I've spearheaded the development of one of the first waterfront parks we had in our community. People are different when they're there because it's got trees, it's got grass, it's got the waterfront that like beckons to them and you automatically become a different person when you're there. You feel it, you know that you're in a safer space. So for all sorts of reasons, you know, not just the, the mental health and well-being, but the other pieces that you need that kind of environment in order to help us deal with many of the climate challenges that we're experiencing right now. And as people, I think, connecting the idea that you can, even in an urban area, there actually does need to be nature, will actually help make the transition for them to understand the value of our public lands in terms of how that is also protecting us. Those natural resources, they are carbon sinks. They actually do absorb stormwater. They do all these things that are protective you know, of the cities in our regions. So we need to be real mindful that it's not just this thing. And I also think that on some level, you know, the, the Great Migration really, I think, messed with, I think in particular, black people's minds a bit so on some level. You know, that you were part of the South and it was a, an agrarian society and you had to move up north in order to make it big. So, of course, you left all that behind. And I think it's been generations of people, you know, who have been taught to believe that the land is something that we should not fully embrace as a part of ourselves. And I think we are reaping, reaping all the awfulness that comes with separating yourself from your environment. Is it safe to suggest or even assume that these urban communities could be gateways toward the global preservation of wild and scenic places? We have to start thinking of our urban areas as gateways to the more natural places because, frankly, 70% of the world's population is going to be in cities, you know, not too far in the distant future. So we have to help people like, live more sustainably and have the opportunities to do so in the urban areas and as, as we also help them understand the value of protecting you know, our wild open places as well you know, for all the environmental services that they provide you know, to the planet, air quality, all those wonderful things. So given all that, we need to be real clear about how we're helping educate you know, our people because this is, it is absolutely an education, communications, PR, marketing campaign. It's all that in that sum. You can learn more about Majora Carter and her work as an urban revitalization strategist online at MajoraCarterGroup.com. For the Joy Trip Project, this is James Mills. The winds of change are blowing. I feel this trouble brewing. I heard a rumor that keeps growing. Yeah, the good old boys are back. New music this week by Teresa James and the Rhythm Tramps. The Joy Trip Project is brought to you thanks to the generous support of our sponsors, Recreational Equipment Incorporated, REI, and Patagonia. We don't take money from just anyone. 
Sponsors of the Joy Trip Project support our mission of an active lifestyle through outdoor recreation and community involvement. Support us by supporting them. Find links to their websites on ours at joytripproject.com. Thanks for listening. But you know, we want to hear from you. So please, drop us a message by email at info at joytripproject.com or find us on Facebook. Share your pictures and your stories. Share your passion for outdoor recreation, environmental conservation, acts of charitable giving, and practices of sustainable living. And you just might inspire our next joy trip together. But most of all, don't forget to tell your friends. Until next time, take care. When the winds die down Ooh, yeah, when the winds die down